The former Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, said the church is the only organization that does not exist for itself, but for those who live outside of it. Now, our current series is called For the Sake of Others, and the question we're trying to answer is how? How do we become a church that exists for the sake of others? Last week, we began with place. We cultivate places for people to explore faith. That is one way we exist for the sake of others. Whether that place is Alpha or a community group or an event the church puts on, we consider though this place, the place where we gather to worship and be built up. This place exists for the sake of others to be able to come and explore faith, but not only explore faith, we expect that when people come to this place, they will encounter God. Because God really is among us. We cultivate places for people to explore faith. And when we gather, we expect that they can encounter God because we're going to encounter God. But the most common way that someone will find their way into this place is through invitation. And I understand that invitation is not easy in a place like Vancouver. And asking someone to come to any event associated with the church, let alone a Sunday worship gathering, is quite hard. And I know there's pressure and there's temptation to accept the mantra of our post-Christian culture that says, you can believe whatever it is you want to believe so long as you keep it to yourself. And life so much easier when we accept this mantra. But if we repeat it, if we live by it, we actually compromise the gospel. Because the gospel is not good advice for people to become a little bit better and keep to themselves. The gospel is good news proclaimed to the whole world. It's the news that God really has come among us. That God is so good that he sent his son into the world for the sake of love to reconcile us into his eternal love. This is not just personal news, although it's deeply personal. It's public news. It's declaration. It is truth. It's not relegated to the realm of values. We can't just keep our faith to ourselves because it's not for ourselves. Today, we're going to look at the posture we can take towards other people. Hopefully, more chill than my own posture. And if we're going to exist for the sake of others, we need to adopt a posture of invitation and a posture of storytelling. And we take this posture with the hope that people over time will discover or rediscover the goodness of God with us. And so if you're here and you're just exploring faith or rebuilding faith or somewhere in between, I realize this is a little bit awkward. You know, we're talking about why we want to invite you to this place. But I hope that we'll actually give you a sense of why this is important to Christians, why we insist on being a church that exists for the sake of others, for people like yourself. And I hope that you'll see that this is not just an agenda, but an expression of our love and an expression of God's love for you. So our two readings this morning were from the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark. And we read about Philip's posture of invitation, and we read about an unnamed man's posture of storytelling. We're not going to reread these passages uh, in their entirety, but we're going to use each one to explore invitation 
and storytelling. So let's begin with the posture of invitation. You know, in our passage from John's Gospel, we read in John 1, 35 through 39. The next day again, John was standing with his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them and following and and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. There can be bad motivations to invite someone to this place. You might invite someone because you feel pressure. You know, I might accidentally create a sense of guilt or obligation, and so you invite because you felt pressured by your pastor to do so, and that is the last thing I want to happen. That is not a good enough motivation, because you might invite someone once, but you're going to be one and done. If we're going to take a posture of invitation in our lives, we need a good motivation, and here it is. The posture of invitation does not begin with ourselves. It starts with Jesus. Jesus came into the world for our sake and he invites us into his presence and he invites us into the very presence of God. And as we see with these first disciples, he welcomes them to be with him. He says, come and you will see. It's an invitation. And almost immediately, we see his first disciples copying him. We read in verses 44 through 46. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. But why does Philip jump out there right away and just start inviting people to meet Jesus? Because Philip has been with Jesus. He knows the goodness of his presence and the excitement that the Messiah has truly come. You see, sometimes we get overwhelmed at the thought of inviting people to this place or inviting people to discover who Jesus is because we assume it starts with talking to strangers and trying to invite someone you just met. You know, you don't want to bother someone on the bus or the SkyTrain. You don't want to be like running after people on the seawall. You know, sure, you might feel prompted from time to time to do that. And some personality types might be more comfortable with that. But for the most part, we think strangers, that's not where I'm going to start. And that's the same with Philip. Philip starts with someone he knows. He begins with his own circle, his own sphere of influence. Because more often than not, God invites us to be present to his presence in the place we already are. You see, Philip starts with the people he knows because often that's where we have to begin. You can make the gospel more plausible to someone who knows you than someone they don't know. You see, God has put you in a specific place among specific people. And each person in your life, he's put you there for his purposes. Philip starts with Nathaniel, and he shares what he knows about Jesus. 
And at this point, he really doesn't know much. He just starts with what he does know. He says, look, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, so often, we don't want to talk about Jesus with others because we don't think we know enough or we're afraid we're going to get something wrong. When I was in elementary school, uh, the office administrator announced birthdays over the PA system. Did that happen for anyone else? And the kids love this because it's the moment to shine. You know, once a week, this crackling voice would boom across the classrooms and hallways, and we would hear, we'd like to wish a happy birthday to the following students. And every year they would say, and we'd like to wish Alistair Stern a happy birthday on October 10th. And I hated it because I was born on October 8th. And for whatever reason, my mother, God bless her, wrote October 10th on my official school forms. And I told them my mom got it wrong, and they said, no, she didn't. She's your mom. I said, I insist. Francis has a bit of a questionable memory at times. And eventually they fixed it three years later when my mom finally got around to it. Now, just because my mom's the worst, no, she's not, but just because my mom made a mistake, Does that mean she didn't know me? Of course not. She made a mistake. Even if you get something wrong about Jesus, it doesn't mean you don't know him, and it doesn't mean that you've made such a terrible mistake that God can't overcome it. You know, Philip says Jesus is the son of Joseph. Joseph was a good man, and he raised Jesus as his own son, but I'm sure Philip inevitably discovered that Joseph is not actually the father of Jesus, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary as we profess in the creeds. As we see in scripture, Philip gets a detail wrong, and it's okay. The world doesn't fall apart. His witness isn't compromised. You see, even if you know a little about Jesus, you know enough. Your lack will never hinder God. If you make mistakes, if you get your facts wrong, if your answers fall short, God will still work through you and with you. But let's say we find the courage and the willingness of Philip. What if people respond in a way we're not prepared for? Because Nathaniel's response is unnerving. Anyone catch that? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's pretty combative. And it's pretty condescending. But I like that Philip doesn't even answer Nathaniel's question. He simply says, come and see. He trusts that Jesus is capable of answering Nathaniel's questions. And we can trust that the same Jesus is capable of answering people's questions still. You see, Nathaniel's skeptical. There's been loads of false messiahs. Israel's had her share of disappointments. And if someone really was the messiah, wouldn't they come from somewhere more magnificent than the backwaters of Nazareth? You know, and what if we invite someone and they respond with skepticism? And let's face it, people ask much harder questions than, can any good come out of Nazareth? That would be great in our post-Christian culture, wouldn't it? But what if the person's an atheist? What if they're well-versed in philosophical arguments? What if you find yourself punching out of your weight class, so to speak? What if you talk to someone who's been burned by the church and they know the scriptures through and through? There's actually something really clever about Philip's response. Come and see. Philip knows that an encounter of Jesus will be more convincing than an argument. 
But what's clever is that Philip actually appeals to Nathaniel's skepticism. Philip appeals to Nathaniel's skepticism. You know, a skeptic is by definition someone who questions and doubts all accepted opinions. But the true skeptics that I have met and know are also committed to inquiry and study. They need to study the evidence for themselves. And so Philip is essentially saying, well, come and find out for yourself if you're skeptical. Come and see the facts. Come and discover whether it is true or not. Come and see. So when you invite someone to this place or somewhere else, you don't have to be able to answer all their questions. In fact, sometimes your best answer, if they ask a question you don't know the answer to, is, I don't know. But you could follow up with, well, why don't you come and see? Because if you come to a service, I can introduce you to some people who might know the answers to those questions. And through the teaching or through the worship or whatever, you might discover some answers to the questions you're asking. You see, our hope is that people will encounter the presence of Jesus here. Not theoretically. Not that they'll just assent to some good ideas. But that they will truly encounter the living God among us. Through worship, through teaching, through liturgy, through relationships, through communion, through any means, so long as the Holy Spirit uses them for the sake of others. And so we adopt a posture of invitation because Jesus already invited us into his presence. And so we invite people to encounter him the way that we have. So having considered the posture of invitation, I now want to turn to the posture of storytelling. And in Mark's gospel, we read about Jesus traveling into the region of the Gerasenes. And the Jewish disciples and followers of Jesus must have thought he lost his mind. Why are you going there? It's undesirable. It's unclean. No good kosher-keeping Jew should be caught dead in the Gerasenes, let alone among a pig farm of all places, Jesus. And when Jesus arrives, his welcoming committee is a man who's been horrendously oppressed by demons. You know, we read about this man who is beyond any possible help. He was so dehumanized by evil that the only resort for people was to treat him like an animal. They bound him up with chains and shackles. And it was of no help. Nobody had the strength to keep him subdued. He was a threat to everyone and even to himself. Every day he was crying and cutting himself. And frankly, most of us have never encountered someone like this. But we know what it is like to encounter people and think, they're beyond help. They're beyond help. They're too far gone. We have people in our lives who we think, they will never believe in Jesus. So we don't share our faith with them. Or maybe you've tried and it didn't go well and so you've given up. It's easy to think they're too hard-hearted or they're too stubborn or they're too arrogant or they're too self-absorbed or too rich or too cruel or too far gone. They'll just reject it. I can't help them. When I moved back to Vancouver in 2012, I met up with an old friend, Scott. He was actually my tour manager years ago, so he knew a whole lot about me. And at the time, we hadn't seen each other for about 10 years. And in that time, I'd become a Christian. And he had only seen this online or through passing comments from others. And so here we were catching up. And eventually he said, I hope this doesn't offend you, Alistair. But I'm still waiting for you to say psych about this whole Christian thing. 
I wouldn't be surprised if this is just one long, elaborate joke that you're pulling on all of us. That's the Alistair I know. And he's right. Psych. No, he's not right. But in a sense, he's right. The Alistair he knew played some epic pranks. Epic pranks. <laughs> but you, if you ask my friends from, from that season, who knew me before I started following Jesus, they would have said, never. Alistair would never become a Christian. If you had asked me, I'd say, no, never. Why on earth would I become a Christian? I was also the person no one wanted to share their faith with. So I was a mess. I was unpredictable. I could be belittling. I could be confrontational. I would shame people for their beliefs. And for the first 22 years or so of my life, at least 22 years went by, not a single person told me about Jesus or invited me into an environment where I could learn about him. I am one of the people that Jesus met in a place that many people said was too far gone. Think about that. The person you think is too far gone might become someone's pastor 10 years from now. You can't fathom what God may have in store for them. So hear me clearly. We don't get to determine who will be receptive to Jesus based on our observations of them or our past history with them. We don't get to make these kinds of judgments. It doesn't matter how many times you've shared the gospel with someone. You don't get to decide what their next response will be. And you don't get to stay at a safe distance from the sort of conversations that make you feel uncomfortable or awkward. You will never know how someone is going to respond until you go and share. And here's the truth. If you think someone is too far gone or too broken or too arrogant or whatever, the gospel's too small for you. The gospel is too small for you. Because the gospel has the power to bring life out of death in the places and people we least expect. It's for those who seem beyond hope, those who are too hard-hearted, that fall on their knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the wayward sons and daughters, the adulterers and the demon-possessed. It's the down and out and nobodies. That's who the gospel comes to. And in our passage... Jesus does what no one else could do. He helps the man who was too far gone because he has that sort of power. And after all is said and done, it's understandable that this man who had been so tormented, all he wants to do is cling to Jesus. All he wants to do is be with Jesus. Let me go with you, Jesus. But Jesus says in Mark 5, 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This man has a story to tell. And Jesus tells him to go and share his story. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. You see, sometimes we invite people to a place where they can hear the gospel proclaimed. 
where they can encounter God through worship. But often, Jesus sends us out. He says, go and tell your story. Share your story with people. And your story is more powerful than the best arguments out there. Many of you know, years ago, we used to run an event called Beer and Theology at a bar called The Sin Bin. And I love these nights. We'd get together with skeptics and atheists and de-church people to talk about God and doubts and questions. And the last time we hosted it, I met Bo. And he was a non-combative atheist, they exist, uh, who asked some great questions. And I gave my textbook answers. He wanted to know, how could we know if God exists? So I gave him the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the moral argument, the aesthetic argument, my favorite, the ontological argument. I gave him four years of seminary in three minutes. But then a woman who was quiet the whole time chimed in and she said, Bo, can I tell you how I started to follow Jesus? And Bo said, please, I'd love to hear. And she said, well, I was an atheist too. And my conversion It didn't happen overnight, but I couldn't shake this desire to know Jesus. And slowly, I had more and more of a sense that God wanted to be in my life, and I couldn't explain it. There's been no bright lights, no arguments that could assuage all my doubts, just a slow progression towards the sense that Jesus is who he said he is, and that he wants to be involved in my life, and that his mercy is enough even for me. That's all she said. That's all she had. And after, Bo asked the table, what do you all find more convincing? Alistair's arguments or her story? And then he looked at me and he said, no offense, Alistair, but I find her story way more compelling. And I did too. The story of your encounter with Jesus is compelling enough for people to listen to. It'll carry more power than any argument out there. Now, I know you might be thinking, well, I don't have a dramatic story like this man in Mark's gospel. And maybe you don't. But you have a story, and your story matters. I was a part of a house church when I first became a Christian, and I hadn't heard any stories of how people met Jesus. And I remember one night, a woman joined our church, and she shared her story, and it essentially went like this. I grew up in a Christian family when I was 11, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and I've been following Jesus ever since. And she said, I know that's a pretty boring story. But to me, it was the most remarkable story I'd ever heard up until that point. I couldn't imagine, as someone who came to faith later in life, how good it must have been to be raised by a family who could help you understand what it's like to walk in the ways of Jesus, what it would be like to encounter him at such a young age and to have him as your true north guiding you through the turmoil of of school, what it would be like to know him your whole life and walk with him. When I heard her speak to me, it wasn't boring. It was like I heard a unicorn existed. It was incredible. No matter what your story will involve, your story is beautiful and it matters because it's A story about the same Jesus, the same mercy, and the same grace available to us all. In our passage from Mark, Jesus sends this man out with a story of mercy. Go and tell your friends. So much like Philip, this man doesn't begin with strangers. He starts with friends. He starts with the people God has already placed in his life. You see, the the story God is writing in your life 
is for you, but it's also for the sake of others. And he wants you to go and tell it. And we don't get to decide who will be receptive and who won't. I know I've said that already, but it's important to take note of the two people we read in the story. Nathaniel was religious and knowledgeable and skeptical and a little arrogant. And this demon-possessed man was tormented and helpless and, and dangerous. And Jesus is able to save them both. No one stands so tall as to be above needing grace, and no one has stooped so low as to be beyond grace. Jesus wants you to go and tell people your, your story of your encounter with him. And so I have just two things I want to ask of you. And I don't usually throw out application where it's this concrete, and I hope if you call St. Pete's home, you'll do this. So the first is about your posture of invitation. I want you to ask, who does God want me to invite to this place? And not to just hypothetically ask it, but to really ask it. I want you to pray and ask God and listen and pay attention to the names and the faces that the Holy Spirit might put on your heart and mind. And as you think about people God might want you to invite to this place, I want you to follow it up with an important question. What is the next right step? So do you invite someone here? Do I invite someone where they can learn more about Jesus in this context? Or do I invite them to my community group where they can build relationships and maybe meet people who can answer the questions they're asking? Do I invite them to the next alpha where they can come into an environment and build relationships and, and, and hear some good teaching? Do I invite them to a coffee and ask if I can share my story with them and become a more intentional conversation about our mutual beliefs? Or do I just invite them to hang out? Because it's not about just inviting someone here. It's about loving them well. Sometimes the next right step is to improve your relationship. Who is God asking you to invite? And what is the next right step? And the person God brings to mind might be uncomfortable for you. It might not even be someone you like that much. And the next right step might be having a difficult conversation about something. Or having a conversation about something you've been putting off. I can't say if you invite someone it's going to be easy. But if God is leading and we're following, it will be good. And you're never responsible for how someone responds. Ever. We want to celebrate faithfulness here. If you invite someone, we want to celebrate that courage. You cannot control outcomes. You cannot decide if they'll say yes or no, or maybe that is not on your shoulders, nor is it on you to decide for them how they will respond. All you can do is invite. And we want to celebrate that if you do that. But the second thing I want to ask of you has to do with your posture of storytelling. We want to help you tell your story. And we really want to tell your story. So over the years, you probably know, we've had stories of renewal on Sundays where people share a snapshot of what God's been up to in their lives, how Jesus has been renewing their lives. We share these stories online. You can go and visit stpf.ca slash stories and, and read some of these past stories. But we want to tell your story. And we've created a blueprint to help you figure out how to do that. So if you go to stpf.ca slash share, 
There's a guideline there. How do I tell my story in a simple and compelling way? And as you write your story, we're asking that you would submit it to us, that you would share it with us, that you'd let us help you edit it and tell it well, and then give you an avenue to tell it, whether we share it through our social media or have you share it on a Sunday. And out of everything we do online, you should know, when we share stories of renewal, they outperform everything. And people engage, and I've seen people visit our church because of these stories. And so if you tell your story online, sometimes it's actually a really uh, less confrontational way to share your story. Because people can choose to read it or not. And you can share it, and your family can read it. The person you might not ever feel comfortable to sit down can suddenly hear about your story. Or if you decide to share your story on a Sunday with us, that's a great opportunity to invite someone to church hey, I'm going to be sharing a bit about my own story this Sunday. Would you come and hear it? I'd love your support. You'd be surprised how willing people are to do that. You don't have to share your story online or on a Sunday, but I'd still encourage you to write your story because you never know when you might have an opportunity to share it. And sometimes it helps to have worked through the process and have an idea of what you could share when that moment arises, but you don't have to worry because it's never on your shoulders alone. Inviting others or telling your story, it's not completely on you. We depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us, to give us the words, to create opportunities, to sustain us in the work, and we're going to look at that more next week. But here's the good news. Jesus took a posture of invitation. He's invited you into his great story of redemption and grace and healing and forgiveness. He invites you again and again into his presence. And it is good to be with him. And so take a posture of invitation and storytelling that represents your own encounters of Jesus. And if you need to encounter him afresh, let's do that. Let's pray and let's worship.